Welcome to Luthier's Tale. I'm Ben Liggett, Luthier and owner of Liggett Guitars. For more info on my guitars, please visit liggettguitars.com. Every week, I interview someone that is passionate about their craft. Today, I'm talking to Damon Myland, Master Luthier at Benedetto Guitars. Benedetto Guitars is the name when it comes to archtop guitars. I pick Damon's brain about all things archtop. Follow Damon on Instagram at Damon Myland and visit BenedettoGuitars.com. All links can be found in the episode's description. Let's get into it. I'm here today with Mr. Damon Myland. How are you, sir? Excellent. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. You work for one of the premier, I would say the archtop maker in the country, maybe the world. Is that fair to say? Some would say that, yeah. Bob Benedetto's been making guitars since 1968, and I've been with Benedetto Guitars since uh, 2006. Uh, and I would say uh, it's one of the you know premier archtop making companies in the world, and I've been very fortunate to be able to come up under Bob Benedetto. So how did you get started in all this? Like start from the beginning like what what did you do before you were working on guitars and what got you what got you into it yeah so i started playing guitar uh well as a kid a few chords but really got serious about it in junior high um, and had a fascination with guitars ever since then i went to college for a couple years at montana state in bozeman montana and gibson's acoustic factory is there so i took a tour one day and was really fascinated you know it was kind of eye-opening seeing um, what's behind the guitars all the steps that go into it sure and so that really sparked something in me i started looking around and found uh, uh, entry level guitar building course um, went to that it was a three-month course course and then i taught the woodworking classes for about a year and a half afterward and then got on with benedetto from there oh wow uh, so what is it? What would you say? What's your clientele like at, at Benedetto Guitars? What's your client's expectation, and 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 what kind of player are you usually dealing with? So we have a few different types of clients. Uh, you know, some are world class players like uh, Bucky Pizzarelli and Howard Alden and Pat Martino. Um, some are educators, uh, professional musicians, but they also teach at a college level uh, at the university system. Um, and also um, hobbyist musicians who maybe were serious about music in their younger years, then went into a different career path, uh, became a, an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, uh, but still play and want the best uh, instrument to do that on. I've noticed, uh, especially in like, like college musicians or university level musicians, they're much more likely to um, make an educated investment in their instrument. Yeah, uh, you know, they're, they're so immersed in the musician culture uh, that they know what's out there. Uh, they're getting it from all sides. And so they know what they want. Um, and they know what's available. And I think you're right. They're very educated on instruments as well. Yeah, it seems like uh, it reminds me a little bit of um, more like classical musicians, how they're they're much more willing to 
make a big investment on a really fine instrument that they know they're going to be playing for decades to come. Um, so the arch top itself, tell me, tell me why do you love the arch top more so than say, um, the, the flat top guitar or the electric guitar? I know you, you build electric guitars yourself as well. So maybe you don't love it more, but, uh, but yeah, what, what about the arch top guitar as an acoustic instrument is special to you? Yeah, the archtop guitar, I love them all. Uh, first of all, they all have their, their place in the music world. Um, the archtop guitar is a unique animal because, uh, I mean, fundamentally, it's, it's just built differently. The string tension is coming down on the top, not pulling up like a flat top. Right. Um, that requires different bracing and different graduations of the top. Um, Sound-wise, an archtop guitar, it, it'd be hard to find a more balanced instrument than a good archtop guitar. Uh, you have definition between each string and every note on the fingerboard. Uh, a well-made guitar should have um, a consistency, a good balance from the lowest note to the highest note, all the way up and down the fingerboard. And you never lose that definition, even if you're playing chords or comping. Um, you can pick out each note in that chord. Um, and that's something I think pretty unique to the archtop guitar. Uh, it doesn't get boomy like some models of acoustics can. Um, and so that's, you know, really the um, traditional tone that a lot of people are looking for in jazz guitar, but it also makes it a very versatile instrument. It can be used for any number of uh, styles of music. Sure. And, and I've heard archtops that seemingly have quite a bit of sustain. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, you, oh, on the whole, they're uh, a, an instrument with less sustain than, say, a, a flat top acoustic. Yeah, and it's not even a lack of sustain necessarily. I mean, a a good responsive instrument should have resonance and sustain. Uh, what the archtop doesn't do is muddy those notes together, uh, so it can still ring out. It can still be very responsive. Um, not all arch tops are like that now. Uh, sure. There are some that are kind of play like a brick and sound like I find that most of them that I've picked up have played like a brick, but when yeah. you, when you pick up a good one, it's like, Oh, okay. This is, yeah. this is a valid form of, uh, the art form for right. sure. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know what to expect from an arch top. Uh, they're not near as common as flat top or electric guitars. So, um, yeah, you know, they may not really understand what a good arch top should be. So what do you look for with a good arch top in terms of sound and tone? I know you described some of it, but... Uh... Yeah, well, we kind of touched on uh, a little bit of that. So where an arch top shares desirable characteristics with a flat top guitar is you want it to be resonant, you want it to sustain, uh, you want clarity of the notes, uh, it should feel even all up and down the fingerboard and sound even though each string is going to have its own characteristics tonally, um, the response that it evokes from the, the body of the guitar should be consistent from low to high. Um, so, it, you know, you, it shares some uh, desirable characteristics with other styles of guitar, uh, but also has its own unique voice. It, I noticed with arch tops, it seems like um, there's much more, um, there's something in the attack of the note that doesn't seem to be there with flat tops. Is that accurate? Yeah. And you can tailor that to, uh, 
you know, if you use parallel bracing, you're going to get a different response in voice than if you use X bracing, for example. Um, Tell me it, the difference in, in those, please. So X bracing is going to be a bit more open, a little warmer, maybe a bit more sustained. Um, and parallel bracing is going to be a little more abrupt. Um, and that has to do with how the bracing in there, in an arch top instrument, um, it's not just for support of the top. It actually transfers the energy from the bridge, uh, from the strings down through the bridge, and transfers that either along the grain of the top or across the grain of the top. And that's going to influence uh, the level of sustain and, and the, uh, like you said, the, the way it responds to your attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the general difference between parallel bracing and X bracing. And then you can get weird, uh, you know, with an oval hole arch top, you may do a V bracing or there's really no limit to what the bracing can look like inside. And each alteration is going to modify the voice of that instrument. So say you have a, um, a serious jazz player that's come to you and he, he plays uh, a lot of notes in quick succession and, um, and does comping and, and chords and things like that. But is there a style of bracing you point him to? Yeah, for, for comping, uh, a lot of players prefer parallel bracing. Um, just the way it responds and the ability to move from one one chord or voicing to the next. Um, and so, it, it, you know, if they have a, a guitar already or several guitars and they can kind of describe what they like or dislike about each one, that helps too. Sure. But you can go based on their, their playing style and the artists that they listen to. Mm. So when you say uh, parallel bracing, are you talking about... Uh, two long bars going from the um, from the neck to the tail, basically on on the underside of the top. Right. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, and with V bracing, what, what's the V bracing look like? So V bracing, uh, Taylor guitars kind of came out with this on some of their flat tops in the last few years. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm familiar with that one. What did they call theirs? Uh, I forget exactly what term I they used too. for it. I think they patented it, as a matter of fact, which is uh-huh. kind of a little bit funny because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, there are some Gibsons from the 20s that have V-bracing and oval holes. Um, uh-huh. but, so it's been around a while, and it's been a viable option for a while. When they came out with that, I, I, I was very curious about it and, uh, and made sure to go try them out in my local shops and stuff. Yeah. V class, V class bracing. That was it. There you go. Yeah. Oh, so here's my thought with the V class was that it did not, it did not do what I want a flat top to do Mm -hmm. in that for me with a flat top, I want to play a chord and I do want things to melt together a little bit of dissonance uh, in certain chords is okay to me. Like mm-hmm. kind of sounds beautiful. And, uh, and it was more of like a note separation kind of thing with the V class. Right. Um, it was very even, but it also kind of bored me. Right. That makes sense? right. Um, and as oh. builders, um, you know, a, a builder's hands are tied to a certain extent, not by the number of legitimate options uh, for bracing, for example but by people's expectations. When they pick up a certain style of guitar, they expect it to sound a certain way. And if it doesn't, that's that can be pretty difficult to sell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting thing um, trying to make something, make an instrument that you think the 
the market will want versus um, what you think would be really good. That's right. Yeah. If you innovate too much, you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? To, tell me about, um, about your own guitar. Do you, you build for yourself as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, so right now, um, so I've got, my guitars are Mylan branded and right now I'm just doing Telecaster copies basically. Um, I saw one with a gorgeous neck on it. Yeah. Premium components, premium woods, um, you know, premium finishes. I'm just trying to do a really nice telecopy um, and selling them to jazz musicians for the most part. You know, tellies are pretty hot in the jazz world right now. Um, so that's is been that, fun. Is that Campolongo's fault? Yeah, probably to a certain extent. Yeah. <laughs> but we can either thank him or blame him either that's way. That's right. right? <laughs> I, I think they're a great uh, single coil. Sound great for jazz to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, tellies are such a versatile instrument. Yeah. You can play any style of music on them, and people have. <laughs> They've been used in all different genres. Yep, sure have. Yeah, the the electric guitar itself it turns out to be very in, very versatile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, what is it like building for someone with such a uh, a history and such a reputation? Do you ever um? Do you ever get nervous? Well, it's a responsibility that I take seriously. You know, Bob Benedetto is retired now. Um, and so oh, I didn't know that. Carrying on his legacy is a responsibility that I, I take very seriously. Um, as far as being nervous or intimidated, uh, Bob got me over that pretty early on when I started working for him because they were still kind of setting up the shop in Savannah. They had just uh, taken back control from Fender, who was um, making his guitars under his supervision for about seven years, I think it was. Okay. Uh, they'd taken back control. Bob partnered with Howard Paul and moved the shop to Savannah, Georgia. Um, and I got on right away. So Bob and I uh, were hustling and trying to get the first batch of guitars ready for the 2007 NAMM show. And he really threw me into the deep end. You know, he taught me how to bind on a $25,000 Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> He decided to add a pickup to a finished and buffed Bambino Elite and brought it to me to, to route a hole in it. Um, so some of those things were intimidating, but I got over that pretty quickly. I had to. We were busy and we had to get work done. Yeah, when you get thrown in the deep end in that fashion, imagine you're like, oh, well, the next one is, uh, this is a cakewalk. Right, yeah. And Bob was a great teacher, too. He would take the time necessary to explain what and why and show you. He'd demonstrate everything, so... Um, that really helped too, having, having him take the time to really lay it out for me. So as a lay person, like I, I wasn't aware of, um, I wasn't aware of some of the administrative changes and such. Uh, uh, I didn't know that Fender had control for a little while. What kind of output, um, does Benedetto guitars do and, and how many employees do you guys have? Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, so um, Bob contracted with Fender, and they had a special group of luthiers um, making his guitars, and he would supervise that. Uh, he'd fly in for one week a month, I think it was, and oversee the production, do all the training of that group of luthiers, um, oversee the guitars before they went out the door. So he still had control over the product, um, 
but different hands making them. Sure. Um, and that worked well. You know, he got to see the factory environment. Uh, he had been an independent luthier for most of his career, so he got a lot out of that, seeing some of the jigs and fixtures and procedures that they used. Um, but eventually decided that he'd like to take back control and be a little more hands-on. And that's what he did when he moved to Savannah. Uh, and that was in 2006 when we set up shop. Sounds like it was uh, smart that he uh, didn't completely sell the name and, and retain some control there. That's right. Yeah, it worked out well for him. Yeah, that's great. So Howard Paul is the president and CEO. Uh, Bob is retired but available to us. He's down in Ocala, Florida. Um, and he's available to us anytime we need to consult with him. And so we have a small team of luthiers, um, and we're making about 100 guitars, 120 a year, right around there. Uh, so a lot of man hours per guitar, a lot of attention to detail. We have uh, you know, quite a few different models. I think it's 18 or 20 different models that we make. And you can still get the full-blown flagship Manhattan or Fratello that Bob is really famous for, or you can get a laminated 16-inch version. Uh, and then we have some chambered solid body electric guitars as well. The laminated version is that a laminated top and back and sides and all that, or yeah, uh, like the Bravo and Bravo Deluxe models are a 16 inch by two and a half inch body, uh, laminated top and back and solid sides, and then we have a 14 and a half inch Bambino that has laminated sides as well. Oh yeah, yeah, um, that can be that can be really good. Um... Um, for humidity changes and such when you have a, a laminated instrument. Exactly right. A laminated guitar is never going to have the same voice as a solid guitar or a carved right. guitar. Um, but if the player is playing with a band every night on stage, plugged in, he may not mm -hmm. care too much about the acoustic value of the guitar. And for traveling around the country and exposing it to different temperature and humidity levels, the, the laminates certainly hold up better. Yeah, and especially if you're plugging in, you know, um, the most resonant instrument is not always exactly what you want. It's not right. always the tool for the job. Yep, it can lead to more feedback and onstage issues like that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I notice in the in the bluegrass world, you know, everyone uh, meets up for, uh, you know, a um, hoedown in the woods, mm -hmm. and uh, they don't always want their... Uh, they're super expensive acoustic out there. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess a lot of your jazz players aren't, aren't going to hoedowns, right? <laughs> Not a lot of jazz hoedowns. <laughs> Dang it. See, that's why I never got into jazz. Not no <laughs> um, so, so tell me some more about your tellies. Uh, how long have you been making these? Um, I guess two or three years now. Um, and I just do that in my spare time. So I've got a little shop at home in a detached garage out back, and I make them in there. And it's kind of nice to, uh, you know, be able to do every step of the process. Uh, at Benedetto, what I do these days is oversee the production crew, and I still do the building of the high-end archtops. Mm -hmm. um, but it's nice to come home and, and spend some time doing every little step of the process myself on these tellies and be able to control every element. Uh, so I start with the best woods available and uh, put a lot of attention into, uh, into the details throughout the process. Yeah, I love how, um, you know, you get a job as a luthier and then your hobby is being a luthier. Yeah, right. <laughs> what else am I going to do? 
<laughs> right? Yeah, someone, uh, if you win the lottery, it's like, what are you, you going to do? It's like, I don't know, buy more tools, make more guitars, hire some people. I don't know. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, that, that's good. That means you're doing what you love. That's right. Yeah, it's a good fit. Um, so I have some specific uh, technical nerd questions about the Archtop guitar. Oh, trying to get my secrets out of me, huh? Well, you know, maybe a couple. <laughs> so I, I get obsessed with certain areas of acoustic instruments. And one of the areas I'm obsessed with, for no good reason, is the upper bout. You know, in a flat top guitar, they throw the transverse brace in there and try to shut down all vibration up there. Um, and they're also, you know, keeping the, the, the body from kind of imploding near the sound hole. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, but with the archtop guitar, as well as, you know, classical instruments, you've got the cantilevered fretboard going over the top. Mm -hmm. How integral is that area on an archtop to tone? Yes, yeah, so it, it does make a difference. The idea there with the floating neck extension is to allow as much of that top as possible to vibrate. Um, mm -hmm. So it does make a difference. Now, it, it depends on how you graduate the top, too. With a flat top guitar, uh, you can do some graduation, you know, thin it out toward the edges, but pretty much the thickness of your top is what it is. There's not right. a whole lot you can do there. With an arch top guitar, you're starting with a one-inch blank, and you can make it much thicker, much beefier up and uh, up toward the neck if you want, or thin it out and really scoop it uh, all the way up until the neck block. Um, and so you can tweak the sound that way as well. I think as long as you get around the waist with a nice, flexible, responsive top, um, it matters less what you do right up to the neck extension. And these days, most people, even if they're getting an acoustic arch top, most people want to pick up on there. And a lot of them go for a built-in pickup. And by the time mm. you route a hole in the top in that area and put a couple extra braces in there, uh, mm -hmm. the graduations aren't going to make as much difference. So say you have a fully acoustic arch top with no, um, no pickup, and you, um, say you strum a chord. Uh, do you ever like strum a chord and, and dampen areas of the top with your hands? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can reach around and see what areas of the top are doing what. So if you if you do that in the upper bow, it, does it it does color the overall tone, you you think? Yeah. Uh, anytime you make contact with that vibrating plate, it's going to make some difference. Now, touching the upper bow isn't going to do as much as damping the recurve in the middle of the lower bow. Sure. Uh, that's where there's a lot of movement going on. Um, but yeah, every, everything is going to make some difference. And that's the thing, having enough elements that are done right, that it makes a spectacular instrument in the end. Yeah. I, I just get hyper-focused on, uh, certain spots. Cause I'm like, well, why do you shut down the, the, the tone in that area? Doesn't, doesn't it contribute to the overall, th you know, I, I see other instruments where they're, they treat that area as kind of more sacred than the flat top community. So I, I always make sure to ask the questions and try to compare because I'm, I'm usually thinking of acoustic instruments from a flat top perspective. Right. Yeah. The other thing that we always have to have in the back of our minds or maybe the front of our minds is that if you build the most responsive flat top in the world or arch top, but it implodes after five years, then you haven't really done your job. 
That uh, is true. And so there's a, a big structural element there that, that has to be uh, taken into consideration. For sure. So on on an arch top, I notice uh, um, there, there's a lot of recurve, right? Past mm-hmm. the, you kind of have the raised center or I don't know, what do you call it? The belly? What yeah, do you, what do you the call belly, it? sure. Okay. You, you've got the belly and as it approaches the perimeter of the sides, you've got this recurve thing. Right. Um, where does it go concave a little bit below the, the sides? Yeah. On a carved instrument, it does. Uh, and, you know, people often compare it to a speaker cone. The string tension is pushing down on the center of the arch, which is supported with the bracing, which distributes that vibration. Um, but as you strum, it's moving that belly in and out. Uh, and it's less of a, a levered effect like a flat top. It's actually pushing down and coming up. And yeah. so like a speaker cone, it has to flex around the edge to allow that to happen. And that's what the recurve is all about. I see. Do you... Um... When you're installing braces in an arch top, are you ever installing braces with tension? I've done that, yeah. Uh, and that's yeah, what are your that, thoughts on that? It, it works. Uh, it makes a difference for sure. Um, Bob has done that from time to time over the years throughout his career. And what he decided, and I agree with him, uh, it makes a more responsive instrument right off the bat because you're loading in some tension there. Um, but over time, that wood is going to relax into, uh, you know, its new form. It's going to lose that tension, and the voice of the instrument could potentially die uh, to some extent. Now, hopefully, the the loosening up and the natural break-in of the instrument has taken over by that point, so the player doesn't notice um, a decrease in the quality of the voice. Um, sure. But there's potential there for that to happen. So. He doesn't advise it in his book. Uh, he recommends against it, but it works. It, it really does make a difference in the immediate voice of the instrument. Have you ever built an arch top with a, um, with a, a glued on bridge similar to um, a flat top where the strings are pulling? Is that no. something you guys have ever done? No, I haven't done that. Yeah, that would kind of be uh, against the uh, the goal, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, people are making hybrid instruments, certainly. There again, there's no limitation to what you can do. Um, sure. Then you have to get out there and market it and get the public to accept it and buy it. Yeah, um, so so with your own uh, with your own tellies, you, you feel more free, uh, or are you trying to appeal to a... Uh, 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 an audience well there's only so much you can do with a telly i think that when you get one off the shelf from fender uh, you may get a great one or you may get one that's not quite there um, and nobody's spending as much time on the details at fender as i can um, and so i think that when you get mine the difference is going to be in the details you know i'm copying the body shape i've got a unique headstock um, but i'm getting um you know, hardware that's available for Telecasters, the best of the best, you know, Callahan Bridges or Rudders or Glendale. Um, but there's only so much you can do. So the difference is in the details. Yeah. With your time at Benedetto, has there been, what is your opinion of altered woods? 
So say like roasted maple or anything like that. Have you guys utilized any of that wood? And, and do you think it makes much of a difference uh, in acoustic instruments? Yeah, so I've used some of that. I got into it a couple of years ago. Um, and so I've been using it a little bit here and there ever since. Um, certainly the wood is different. When you mill the wood, you can tell that there's a difference. It's, yeah. it's more brittle. It's uh, one thing I really love about it is it's completely stable. It comes I do in like with, that as well. Yeah, 0% moisture, and it's not going to move around on you. Um, so that's really nice. And you can tell that what they say about the heat treating is true. It's, it's more brittle. It's stable. It has crystallized all the resins within the wood. All of that is true. And it sounds good in my experience. Um, you know, there's... When you're building custom guitars, there are so many other things that can vary from one instrument to the next that it's hard to uh, point at the the roasting as being a major factor in the voice of the instrument. But yeah, I like the stuff. Um, I'll go that far, and it's beautiful. Yeah. I love the color. Yeah, yeah, it is good, and and I noticed the tap tone is a little different. Yeah, um, it just seems like a different species when I pick it up. Yep. I've noticed, you know, I, I use a, a little frequency analyzer on my phone just to kind of monitor what I'm doing. Um, I don't build to that or anything, but if you check the tap tone, you can watch the frequencies and the sustain on there as well. And I, I feel like the roasted woods maybe sustain a bit better. What app do you use? Um, what is it? I don't have to look. Yeah. Yeah. Look for us. Do you, uh, are you familiar with Trevor Gore? Yeah. Mm -hmm. With the, he's uh, got he's got some uh, some some program where you can take that frequency that you've taken with your phone and you can run it through his his thing, whatever that is, and it can basically tell you, like, say with flat top tops and, and your grading tops, you can be like, oh, this is in the top one percent of tops. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, some guys are building very scientifically. You know, Brian Gallup and Sam Guidry got, got into that stuff a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a viable building method as well. Now, when I say that I, I reference this analyzer, I don't build to that. Bob never did. Um, sure. And we build by ear at Benedetto. I just find it interesting to track the, the frequency response of the top and back plates and then the finalized instrument and look for trends. Um, yeah. So I don't build to it, but having that data can't hurt. Um, and I find it interesting seeing the difference in, say, the roasting process compared to another board from the same tree that has not been roasted. Yeah, I also find that method to be, uh, it's interesting and it's very scientific and all that, but building to me feels much more like I don't know. It feels more natural to be guided a little more by instinct. Right. And it's more fun. Yeah, it is more fun. <laughs> and it seems more magical, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> if everyone could type the numbers into the computer and get the result, then what good am I? Right, right. I don't think anybody should start with the uh, frequency analyzing programs. Uh, I think you should do it by ear for a while and then maybe get into that for uh, productivity reasons. Um but everybody should try to develop their ear when they're starting out building. When you're picking up an archtop top, you get them in wedges, correct? Usually, yeah. So you get some wedges of spruce. Um, what are you looking for when you pick up a top? 
Well, with the top, uh, you want straight, even grain. You want the width or the, the uh, grain count per inch to be fairly consistent from the center to the edge. Um, you don't want a lot of uh, discrepancies as far as like a, a blob of figure in one area of the top and not in another. The figure in spruce can be much harder than the wood around it. And mm -hmm. so that makes it a little more difficult to work with. Not that it can't be a great piece of toned wood still. Um, and you also want it lightweight and uh, responsive. So tap tone is one of the first things you check. Are you tapping things before they're seamed together? Yeah, I'll generally tap on the wedges and just try to get a sense of it. You know, what you do is right from the beginning of the process when it's wedges coming into your shop or when you pull them out and you're, um, you're about to start the process of carving, um, you want to monitor that piece of wood throughout and that gives you an overall sense of the wood you're working with and you can watch it change in pitch and responsiveness. I've heard archtop makers speak about um, hearing the top as they're chiseling it. Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah, as you're chiseling, um, you, you kind of start to get a sense of what it's going to do or what it sounds like? Yeah, um, and there again, you know, to build intuitively, you have to have some experience. Uh, mm -hmm. And so eventually, um, you know, what I carve to is kind of a, a complexity, uh, a nice fundamental frequency, but also overtones. And you hear that with your ear over time. And it's funny you mentioned uh, hearing it as you're carving because I can hear it coming. I, I can tell when I'm just about there and I can hear it in the plane or the scraper. Um, and so that's a fun process too. You, you hear when you're almost there and then slow down and just sneak up on that uh, that final graduation. Can you tell me about a time when you've gone too far or a top has gone, been too thinned? No, we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Never ever. <laughs> you know, uh, we, I don't think we've ever had to throw away a top for that reason. There's things you can do too with bracing. So if you feel like you just missed the mark, you can maybe put in a little heavier bracing. Sure. Um, because that alters the response of the top too. And the bracing or, or tone bars have to work in conjunction with that top. Um, but no, I, I don't think we've ever really had to scrap a top or back for, for that reason. That's great. Now tell me about the back of an arch top. What, how much does that, you, you know, the arch on the top is, um, you know, it's functioning like a speaker. It's, uh, it, it's, its shape is also giving it strength mm -hmm. um, from the string tension, but how does the back work in relation to all that? Yeah, so the back is going to reflect, uh, you know, the energy come down, comes down through the top, and then there's a, uh, a box frequency uh, that's inherent to the instrument itself. And the back, the dished or arched back, is going to reflect that sound out through the sound holes, generally F holes on an arch top or an oval hole. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the reflecting of that dish is certainly a, a big element of it, but depending on how thinly you carve the back, it may have its own color that it adds to the voice of the instrument. And you can hear that just by pressing your belly up against the back or removing it away from your body a little bit. Um, some instruments are going to have a very, uh, influential back and some not so much. Will you make a back thicker 
for a um, a player that may stand up uh, during performances, uh, something where it's resting against his back, where you just want a, a reflector rather than than an active back. You don't really have to, you know. He's he's going to damp it himself in that case, so uh, you don't really have to worry about how much it's it's influencing the the voice of the instrument. Uh, where I find that I have the most um, difference in thickness of a back is with different species of wood. If you're working on a very hard piece of wood like a, a cocobolo, for example, uh, it's going to end up being much thinner than a European maple back. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Woods like that too. Um, yeah. I always worry about them cracking or something. Uh, they can. One, some are more prone to that. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You start getting really, really dense and things can get kind of brittle. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and maple, uh, it, would you say maple is like the, the classic back and sides for an arch top? Yeah, that's the classic. You know, the arch top was inspired by the violin family of instruments in a lot of ways. And European maple backsides and neck and European spruce tops were the traditional woods for violins. So that's where they started with, with arch tops. Um, and that became the traditional sound and that, what people expected from an arch top. Yeah. Now, we will use some mahogany or sapili or cocobolo, some exotics from time to time. And it's going to be a, a different sounding instrument. But most people want that classic sound of maple back and sides. What is a, what is a back and side set? Um, that you like a lot personally that's non-traditional? Um, I've done a couple with Cocobolo recently, and, and that's a fun wood to work with. Uh, it's heavy and dense and oily, so there are challenges there as well. Um, yeah, especially I'm, in finishing, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm making a, a personal arch top right now with the Ziracote back and sides, and that there stuff is go. just gorgeous. I love Ziracote. Did you, uh, is there any sapwood in that set or no? Not in that set, no. I do like that contrast, though, between light and dark. Now, is the sapwood, do you find that uh, less stru- structurally sound as the rest of it? I don't have a whole lot of experience there. Uh, you see people using it a lot, so it, it can't be a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that layer cake kind of look yeah it's pretty unique to that species yeah um so tell me about this personal one you're making what else uh what other kind of woods you got going on yeah uh so this one's going to have a sinker redwood top that they pulled out of big river and it was down there for about a hundred years um and so it's got beautiful streaking dark mineral streaks down through it uh, all throughout um so really a pretty piece of wood and i think it's going to pair nicely with the Zeracote. And I think I'm going to make it, I've been messing around with this a bit lately uh, over the last couple of years, uh, nylon strung arch tops. And so I think that's what I want to do with this one. You have to carve them thinner to get them to respond to the lower string tension of the nylon. Yeah. Um, But it's kind of a really unique, um, beautiful sounding instrument. Do you just use like a standard set of nylon uh, like classical strings on that you can uh or tomastic makes a rope core string have you messed around with those at all i have not and that's kind of a hybrid string um 
yeah, rope core is what they call them, but it makes a lot of sense on these nylon arch tops because it's a hybrid instrument. And sure. it truly sounds halfway between a, a classical and an arch top guitar. Interesting. Really well, cool. it, you, you've got to uh, post some sound clips of that thing on your Instagram when you get done with it. I will. I will. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's uh, that sounds like it's going to be a great guitar. It should be pretty unique. Yeah. Yeah. Redwood. Uh, you cannot go wrong with that. That sinker redwood. Sinker Redwood is beautiful. It's resonant. It's got all the good stuff about cedar and plus a little extra, I feel like. Um, it's a really unique wood and should, with nylon strings, it should really uh, be a very complex voice. Are you are you someone that's going to play with a pick, you think, or, or are you going to, is this more of like a finger style? I think you'll be able to do both. Uh, with that combination of woods, with that redwood top especially, it should be responsive to fingerstyle playing. Yeah. Um, but being a hybrid, uh, not on strong arch top, it'll respond to a pick well as well. Man, that seems like a really good, uh, really good match there. Well, what are some scale lengths that uh, uh, are common for arch tops? You know, 25 inch is kind of the go-to. Um, it's comfortable for most people. And all the time I've been building for Benedetto, uh, we have not had a large percentage of customers ask for any different scale length. Most of them really? pick up the 25 inch scale and they're, they feel right at home, whether they're coming from um, slightly shorter or slightly longer, that feels good. Um, so 25 inch is pretty much where it's at. Uh, some players like 25 and a half. Howard Alden's guitars get 25 and a half inch scales. Um, once in a while, we'll go shorter. Our Pat Martino model has a 24 and 5 eighths scale because he was coming from Gibson when he came to us. Right. Um, and that's what he was used to. Has Has anyone convinced you guys to make a, a multi-scale arch top yet? We haven't gotten into that, no. Um, I've gotten a couple of inquiries, but it's just not something that we're we're set up to do. And right now, especially we're so busy that we're not looking to take on a project like that at the moment. Who knows down the road, we certainly could. Yeah. People, uh, people don't often understand when you have like a, um, a, a lot of instruments you're building per year, throwing in one thing that's not something you do all the time. It can really throw a monkey wrench into things. Yeah. It takes so much time just from the production. Uh, you do a, a multi-scale version of your guitar, don't you? What are your models? Yeah, yeah. I, I've done a, f a few different ones uh, just here and there. Uh, I've done an eight-string multi-scale and uh, some six strings. Uh, the six strings, I, I do like a 26 to uh, 25 and a half. Okay. So it's not, not nothing crazy, just a little more tension on the low on the low strings. And, and I really like that tension, 26 to to 25 and a half is like, I think my favorite. So as a player, you're a fan of that feel. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that too is, um, if I'm singing while playing, I, I'm usually tuned to D standard. Okay. Um, so the whole step down and, right. and that, that will, uh, that makes a big difference. That way I can use regular, a regular gauge, and it, it kind of evens out sure. to, okay. to just like lights on a 25 and a half inch scale. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it's subtle. Um, the one thing about multi-scales I don't care for is uh, if, if the fan is really, really wild, um, bending 
can get kind of screwy. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, like on there's an, uh, some eight strings I've made that are uh, they get kind of wild and uh, you know it's kind of intuitive like you know the bending gets more wild as you go up the fretboard and and if you play it for a while you can't get used to it you'll adjust yeah yeah and uh are you currently taking orders for your tellies i am yeah you can email me uh damon myland at gmail or message me on instagram yeah if you guys are into tellies and you want a very very fine one i would highly suggest going to uh to damon's instagram and looking at those and yeah, definitely reach out to him about that. I appreciate that. Well, man, thank you so much for talking with me today. Absolutely, Ben. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.